Uh, Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. We're going to wrap up Luke chapter 10 today. Uh, verse 38 is where we'll start. I'll pray for us and we will dive in together. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the truth and power of it. And we pray in Jesus' name as we open it to read it, to reflect upon it, and to respond to it that it would have a revelatory effect that we would see things we had not seen, understand things that we had previously, we had been confused on, that it would stir our hearts, that it would, it would, it would um, render a kind of transformational work in our life. Lord, we're grateful that Christianity is not uh, being conformed from the outside in, but rather being transformed from the inside out as we conform to the image and likeness of Christ, learning to think the thoughts of God and to follow in the footsteps of, of God's Son and to walk in the power of God's Spirit and so in that spirit and toward that end, we ask that your Holy Spirit would attend our time, the reading, the preaching, the receiving, and the responding of your word. We pray that it would have its intended purposes in our life today to change us to be more like Jesus as we endeavor to follow him with all that we have and with all that we are. We ask to that end that you would be glorified in this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 10, verse 38, just uh, 38 through 42 here, four or five verses. Uh, this, is, this is a short story, but it's kind of an iconic story. If you are familiar with the Bible or you've been following Jesus for some time, you, you, you've heard this, and you maybe have not been following Jesus or not read your Bible and you still might recognize it. It, it. It's the Mary Martha story, and, and Martha has kind of become... Um, uh, kind of synonymous with you know the busy life, the distracted life, uh, uh, the under or the misprioritized life, and, and I think in some ways Martha gets a bit of a bad rap in the story. So hopefully we can we can set the record straight this morning so as to redeem uh, all of those type A's like us who always hate reading this story. Here we go, Matthew chapter or excuse me, Luke chapter ten verse thirty eight. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, if we're going to read this in all fairness, there's probably some sibling dynamics going on here. And if I was at home with my kids, I would, I would read it in a more accurate tone, which probably sounds something like this. Lord... Gosh, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself like she always does? Tell her to help me, Lord. She's thinking, finally, the king of the universe is here, and maybe Mary will listen to him. Because she certainly hasn't listened to me. To which he responds, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. There's the story. What's the point? A few observations to get us into the story. Number one, Jesus had foes, fans, and friends. It's just story reminds us of that again. Jesus went about his, his teaching ministry, and there were many critics, many foes. They, they worked against him. They tweeted against him. They lied about him. They mounted social media campaigns against him. They tried to dig up old stuff and cancel him. They did not like Jesus, and they were actively working against him. Jesus had foes. Secondly, Jesus had friends. Those folks that were kind of the fair weather folks, they came around, hey, you should follow Jesus. He heals sick people. He'll take care of your allergies, and he'll give you a ham sandwich. It's a great deal. Like, you should follow the Jesus guy. When the weather was nice, they were there. When the weather got stiff and the wind blew, they ran. They were fans. And then Jesus had those in his circle who were friends. And these friends loved him, served him, prayed for him, prayed with him, walked with him, fed him in the story, as we see, opened their homes and were hospitable to him, stood by him when he was crucified. Jesus had friends. You need friends. You're going to have foes, you're going to have fans that think you're really something, even though you know you're not, and then you're going to have friends like Jesus had here, and friends are necessary for you to live a full life, and they're necessary to celebrate fully the wins that you experience, they're necessary to walk with you through the challenges that you face when you fail, or when life sort of beats you up. Friends are a good thing, we see that here, Jesus enjoying friends, and, and I, I point that out because sometimes we read this story, and it comes across, Mary good, Martha bad. That's not the point of the story. Jesus loves both of these dear, exceptional women, and he's going to 
instruct both of them in some things here we'll see in a moment. Second observation, Jesus honored and elevated women. And I, I, just, I just make this note so we don't miss it, that Jesus was turning upside down social mores of the time. Okay? He was a rabbi, he was a teacher, which meant wherever he went, the men would go sit with him, smoke stogies, and talk theology. I don't know if they were smoking stogies in this story, it's not in the text, but I'm just, you know, I'm just kind of helping fill it out there, fill in the details. The guys would hang out with Jesus, and the women, they would go cook the food. Women in the kitchen, men with a rabbi, that was how it worked. And Jesus here is saying, no, 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 Mary, come in here. Martha, come in here. I'm going to teach you about me and my kingdom, and I expect both men and women to make disciples. I expect both men and women to minister in my name. I expect both men and women to carry out the mission of God in advancing the kingdom and building the church. Jesus is giving to both men and women intrinsic worth, dignity, value in treating them as equals in relationship to the kingdom of God. And we don't just want to blow past that because it would have been radically uh, uh, um, out of step with the culture that Jesus was in. Jesus honored and elevated women at every turn. Now, a few parameters on our story to define what it isn't about. Because sometimes in working towards what we think Jesus is trying to say, it's helpful to understand what he's not saying. Number one, this story is not about hospitality. It would be a wrong rendering of the story and interpreting of it if we read it and thought, well, Jesus must be anti-fixing food for people. Okay, This isn't a commentary on whether or not you should fix food when people come over to your home. That would be a very simplistic and, and erroneous and stupid understanding of this text because we know that Jesus is pro-fixing carne asada when, when, when guests come over. Okay, So this isn't Jesus hating on carne asada. Jesus is pro-carne asada like, like we know all Christians are. And, so, and, and furthermore, Jesus' apostles taught very clearly on hospitality, right? To be unhospitable is to be ungodly and unchristlike. We are to exercise sacrificial hospitality with our homes, with our lands, with our possessions, with our food, with our skill sets, so that we can extend to other people through sacrificial hospitality a flavor of the kingdom of God. So this is not Jesus being a crank and prioritizing Bible study over food. This isn't about hospitality. Number two, this story isn't about work ethic. Okay, This isn't Jesus saying, the varsity Christians are those that shun their chores and sit at my feet. Jesus is going to make, I think, a bigger point here about something different. We'll get to it in a moment. But I would want us to read this and think, oh, oh, see, see, to be a godly man, what I need to do is work less and read my Bible more. Now, let me be nuanced here. Should you read your Bible more? Wait, not, not good yet. Everyone in here needs to read their Bible more. Yes and amen. Should you also be a man or woman known for their work ethic? Yes. And so this isn't a story about, you know what? We just need to do less and be more. And, and, and those are important categories, and that's true on some levels. But this story isn't making that point. This, is, this isn't Jesus being anti-work ethic, type A, Martha, pro type B, sit, contemplate, reflect, and journal. That's not what's going on here in this moment. I make that point because I'm not type B. Uh, number three, the story isn't about salvation. Th this isn't saying, Martha, I wish you would get saved and be more like your sister Mary, who is already in the kingdom. These are two women who love Jesus, who are following Jesus actively, who have devoted their life to him, who are faithful disciples of him, who love him dearly. This is an intramural conversation. This is Jesus talking to two women he dearly loves. This isn't, oh, the unsaved person is busy and the saved person is riveted on Jesus. This is Jesus talking to two women he loves dearly in his family. It's not a story about sibling, sibling, sibling rivalry, although I'm sure there's some there. Okay? I doubt this is the first time Mary's been distracted, okay? Whose house are we in? Mary's or Martha's? Say it. The type A's. Thank you very much. We're in Martha's house because she's responsible, she gets crap done, she works hard, and she's got a house. Mary don't, okay? So without Martha, we don't even get this story, okay? Without Martha, there's no living room for Jesus to sit in to make this little point he's going to make. So we are pro-type A Martha's, amen? Just say amen. Okay, thank you. I feel better already. 
But this isn't about, you know, uh, Jesus loving one sister more than the other. This isn't about petty sibling rivalries, rivalries, although I'm sure there's dynamics there. You know, Mary's the creative type that decided to go out, and, you know, when she went off the rail, she went whole hog and sell her body to make money. And, and Martha's like, my goodness, like, like she's, she's a, an animal, party animal. I've been, like, working a job, holding down a job, buying a house, taking risks, taking on a mortgage, making my bill. Pay. I mean, think about it. She invited Jesus to her house. She took the risk and responsibility of being willing to feed the Savior universe, which came with inherent risk. What if I give him food poisoning? <laughs> like, like, that's the thing. And like, Mary wasn't willing to take that risk. Mar- Martha was. We're grateful for Martha. Okay, keep moving here. This story is about hyper-spirituality. And, and I make this point maybe just out of my own proclivities and my own... But, but this story isn't about, you know, to be a better Christian, you just need to sit and meditate and go on long walks and fast and pray and exercise solitude and go to a monastery and become a monk because sitting in the presence of, the, of, of Abba Papi, Papa, that's what he wants. And those of you that do the dishes, you need to grow up. That's not the point of the story. And I'm not anti any of those things. I'm not anti fasting, praying, solitude, journaling, meditating. All those things should be done, yes and amen, as disciplines of the follower of Jesus, but, but I want to be careful to not hyper-spiritualize this story. And I'm saying that because I sometimes hear stories in the Bible and the application of them hyper-spiritualized, and it makes me un- un- uncertain. Like, like, Josh, you just need to sit in the presence of Papa. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means sometimes. And, but I do, but sometimes I don't. You know what I mean? And so, and so I, I just want to be careful to not hyper-spiritualize this, this story. Uh, and let's see if we can get some very, very practical takeaways. Here we go. Now that I've like totally tried to you know, frame this thing so as to let all the typos off the hook as much as possible, let's see what the Bible actually says. This story, I believe, is about decision-making priorities and missed opportunities. Now, unless you think I'm taking Jesus out of the equation, running right to like, you know, corporate leadership uh, 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 or practical leadership applications, just follow me here and listen to what I want to say in relationship to what Jesus says here too. I think this story is about Jesus helping both Mary and Martha and everyone listening there realize that your life is a series of decisions you make in relationship to, to conscious or unconscious priorities that you have that can result in opportunities apprehended or opportunities missed. I, I think that's what Jesus is, is, is helping her see here. L- look at verse 40. But Martha was distracted, you can circle that word, key word, by all of the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus. Hey, I need some help here. He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but a few things are needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and I'll be taken from her. The totality of your life will be made up of decisions you made based on seen or unseen, conscious or unconscious priorities that you held that resulted in opportunities apprehended or opportunities missed. One of my mentors has told me uh, uh, this, or, uh, this organizational principle that we can apply to our personal life. He says, your organization is designed and structured to get exactly the outcomes you're currently getting. So if you don't like the outcomes of your organization, change the systems that are giving you those outcomes. Your unwritten, unintentional, hidden priorities that exist in your heart are, are guiding the decisions that you're consciously and unconsciously making that are giving you the current outcome of your life. Now, I understand some things happen to us outside of our control, circumstances beyond our ability to get our hands around, but how we respond to every circumstance is well within our control. Where you are at in your life is largely the the sum total of decisions you've made flowing out of the priorities you've held and resulted in opportunities apprehended or or opportunities missed. And here's the point I want to land on us here this this morning, and it's a point that was made to me in in reading I was doing in my mid-20s, and it came out of theologians and philosophers pondering the meaning of life uh, and what makes life uh, 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 um, purpose-filled and what, what brings the most uh, uh, happiness and joy. And the framework was a hedonistic frame, framework in, 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 in making the argument that every person, no matter their, their um, moral leanings or religious convictions, every person is always 
making decisions towards what they perceive will be the most happiest outcome for themselves. We are hardwired to pursue joy. And that's not a bad thing. It's how God has made us. From, from the man trying to get a, 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 a promotion in his job to the man who hangs himself and takes his own life. Every decision we make is laying a brick on the road that we're hoping to walk towards happiness. And Blaise Pascal and many other uh, uh, wise, wise philosophers and theologians and scientists were making these observations, and I found it true in my own life so that I believe it is an axiom true of all of life. You are, you are never not doing what you want to do. You are always doing what you want to do. And, and, and once we wrestle with that, that philosophical framework for life, it, it brings things into stark reality going on in our life because we tend to think of ourselves as victim of circumstances or victim of other people or just kind of like un- unable to make decisions for ourselves. to which I always respond, no one can make you do anything you don't want to do. Not only are you an American that should mean something, hopefully still, but you are a free moral agent. God has given you the dignity and the responsibility of making decisions that matter. And every decision we make is always and only towards perceived happiness, short-term or long-term. And you may think, well, that's not true, because because every morning I wake up, I do things that that I don't want to do. I do things like, you know, eat kale. (laughs) You know who you are in here. You know who you are. Is that a sucking chest wound? Rub some kale on it. Those folks, right? Kale's the answer to everything. You're like, you're like I eat kale, and then, I, I, and then, and then I, I, I burn incense that smells like kale, and then I do my devotions, and then I, and, and, and then I take a shower and rub kale in my hair. I'm taking the kale joke too far, I know. You're, you know those healthy people, you know what I mean, that, that Jesus loves and I struggle liking. You get, you're disciplined. You get up at five in the morning. You know, you, you, like, you like do a burpee getting up out of bed. And, 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 and then you're like, while you're showering, you do pull-ups in the shower, you know what I mean? And you know, you're those people, right? And you're like, I don't like doing pull-ups, I don't like eating kale, but I do it uh, because I think it'll make me healthier. There it is. I want to live, but my life is so sad, I'm going to kill myself. How could that be taking a step towards happiness? Because the dis- the decision process is, I'm unhappy, I'm depressed, I'm discouraged, I'm overwhelmed, I'm afraid, I'm terrified, I'm stuck, I'm whatever. I need to somehow get out of this fear cloud, this depression cloud. If I take my life, it'll be over and I'll be happier. See it? Every decision you make, from what you eat to how you see your whole life, which, by the way, taking your life is a horrific tragedy every time, all the time, but every decision we make is, is driven by and geared toward Happiness. You never are not doing what you want to do, which means you and I have decisions to make every day, which means we should consider what are the priorities driving those decisions. And I believe Jesus is taking this very, very familial moment, wonderful, love-filled moment to help Martha think through her priorities and how silly is the priorities she's living with in light of what's in front of her as an opportunity. Okay? We live in a Martha world. What do I mean? Look at the text. Martha was distracted by all the preparations. She, she, she was distracted by preparations, and she was worried and upset about many things, Jesus said. Distraction, worry, and being upset. Like, 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 like that's, that's, that's the normal modus operandi for almost every person in the room. What's your life marked by? Well, upsetting events, uh, anxiousness, and constant distractions. Who 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 not raise your hand and go, yeah, that's kind of like my life every week. I have to fight against distractions. I have to fight against constant anxiety, worry, and fear. And there's always something to be upset about in my own life, in my family, in my community, in the world. And Jesus is saying here, you know what? What Martha is experiencing in the kitchen right now is what everyone experiences in humanity every day, all day long. Is they have decisions to make about good things or best things, and if they're distracted by the secondary things, it will cause anxiety to rise in their heart, and they'll miss opportunities in front of them. We live in a Martha world. What do I mean? I mean this. This will sound cliche, but it's cliche because it's true. I believe Jesus is saying it here. The enemy of the very best is often the pressing demands of the very good. 
Now, we have this category of things called temptation and sin. Temptation isn't sin, but temptation, when played with and thought about uh, and toyed with and followed, gives birth to sin, and sin is a set of choices that you make that only and always ends in death, destruction, devastation to yourself, to your soul, to your emotions, to your mental status, to your relationships, to the world around you in which you live. There is never a situation ever where conscience acts of sin in an ongoing way results in life and human flourishing, ever, because God set the rules, and no one can break them without consequence. So we have these things over here that are, that, are, that are sin, that tempt us, that we know. No one needs a pastor or preacher yelling at them to know that when you sin, it will bring devastating consequences. And then there is this whole other category of things called very good. There are these very good things that, that you could give your time to and your life to. It wouldn't be a sin. It wouldn't be a mistake. It, it, it is a very good thing. The question is, is it the very best thing? When the very good thing take priority of or bump out the very best things, it's a missed opportunity. And because Jesus loves us and wants what's best for us, he's inviting us into regularly experiencing the best things all the time. Look at the text. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. What were the preparations that had to be made? She was making food for Jesus, okay? That's, how many in here think that's a pretty good thing? Totally. There's nothing wrong with wanting to keep the Savior fed so he can live long enough to die, okay? This is a noble endeavor that Martha is, is, is working on. She wants to feed Jesus. She wants to feed the disciples. She wants to make sure that they're fueled up so they can go out and, and, and make disciples the next day. This is not an evil thing. This is not a bad thing. This isn't even a mediocre thing. This is a very, very good thing. And the point Jesus is making with her is there are actually a few things that rise to the top of, as ultimately important. And carne asada for me right now might not be the best use of your time since I'm in your home. The enemy of the very best is often the pressing demands of the very good. So the question becomes, what are the pressing demands of the very good in your life right now that might be keeping you from experiencing the very best? The Martha world is where a life of order, a life out of order is a life of constant anxiety. Martha's life here in this one little moment, in this one little instance, is potentially out of order, potentially, and I'm not even sure if Jesus is speaking to her directly. I'll make a note on that in a moment. But what he is saying is, is this, when, you're, when you experience anxiety, being upset, it might be because your life is out of order. It might be because you've taken those most important things and you've allowed them to be replaced by some very good things, and now you're experiencing stress and anxiety because of it. Well, what do you mean? Well, a Martha world is where the tyranny of the urgent will cause us to miss the best things right in front of us. The tyranny of the urgent will cause us to miss the very most important things in front of us. Here, 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 here's, and these are just some ruminations for you to consider. I'm not even sure if Jesus was talking specifically to, to Martha as so much as he was Mary. Because what he says here is, Mary has chosen what is, what is, what is better right now, and I'm not going to take it from her. Jesus could have easily been meaning, look, I'm glad you're fixing food. That's important. You're called to that. That's great. Mary, you know, sold her body for money for a while, and she's here now with me, and she's following me, which is a big deal. She's repentant, which is a big deal. She's worshiping, which is a big deal. And what she needs more than anything is to be right here with me, learning from me, and I'm not going to take her from them. I'm not going to take that from her. Maybe what Jesus is saying is beware that you know what's best for other people to be doing right there in that moment. Right? Now, Jesus might be saying, Mary, Martha, you should be in here too, but what Jesus is saying is, you're upset and worried about many things, few things are needed, we'll talk about that in a moment, but Mary is choosing what's best for her in this moment, and I'm not going to take that from her. One of the warnings here is to think that you know what's best for other people, and you, you, you can prioritize their life based on, on the information that you have. The tyranny of the urgent will cause us to miss the best things right in front of us. One of the things I think that, that, that Jesus might have been concerned about is... Type A personalities tend to get a sense of identity and worth and meaning and value from producing things, right? The more I can get done, the better I feel. And maybe Jesus is saying something like this. Look, I know you're going to feel better about yourself if, if, if you get more things done, but if you knew everything you had in me, you wouldn't need production to give you value and a sense of identity. 
And so you can reprioritize things a little differently than fixing carne asada for the Savior rather than spending time with the Savior for the short window of time you have him here in your home. Maybe Jesus is saying, be careful that you, that you don't prioritize really good things above, above all you have in me because in doing so, you look to them for identity, worth, value, meaning, purpose, safety, security. And if you just made me the main thing, you wouldn't need those things anymore and you'd be less anxious. You'd be less distracted because we're anxious and we're distracted and we're upset because if I don't do this, I'll, I, it might, if I don't fix the perfect cake or have had the perfect meal or if my home isn't perfectly clean and people come over, they might think less of me and, and I care about what they think because I idolize their opinion of me. Therefore, I have to make myself busy and upset and anxious to fix my house so I win their approval because I live for the approval of man rather than the approval of God. And if I had the approval of God and lived from that place, I wouldn't care so much what they think, and I could have more peace and be present in the moment I'm in. Like, there's lots going on here that Jesus is talking about. And there's, there, there's enough room for conviction for all types of personalities in this moment. And I think Jesus loved Martha, and he missed Martha. And I, and I get that from, from how he, he, he talks to her here. She comes in, she does the whole, hey, I'm busy, I'm stressed, my sister's being irresponsible, again, rolls her eyes, do the king thing, make her come in and and fix something, and Jesus, I think, chuckles when he says this, okay? I think he's seen the whole picture, she's in there, stressed, and flour all over her face, you know, and then in the blender, going, and something burning in the kitchen, the smoke, and she's in there, cussing under her breath, you know, and, 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 and in the kitchen is Jesus, he's laughing, he's teaching, he's talking, and, and they're being enjoying each other. And she comes out and she's all harried. And, and, and I think Jesus is kind of like, Martha, Martha, look at you. You're crazy. You're being driven by production because that's where you find your value. We're in here having a great time because I'm, oh, I don't know, the center of the universe. The center of the universe is in your living room and you're worried about the chicken. He says, Martha, Martha. If he had said Martha, I would have taken it more like as a rebuke. Martha. If you say it three times, Martha, Martha, Martha. It's more like, you stupid idiot. You know what I mean? Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Martha, Martha, Martha. You know what I mean? Like, again, you're doing the whole, I get my identity from what I do. Oh, it's so frustrating. Mary, what, how do you live with her? Like, that's not what's happening here. It, it, it's this love-filled twinkle in his eye. I think chuckle. He's, he's looking like... He's talking about the kingdom and the kitty healed, and, he's in, and maybe he's doing some miracles right there in the spot. He's, he's going to be in their home like, like, like an hour or two hours, and then he's gone, never to come back. And they're all around him, and she comes in, flower in her face, barking at her sister, and he's like, Martha, 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 oh my gosh, look at you. You're so predictable. I love you. Now, look, I know you're anxious, and it's said about many things, but really only one thing's needed. And he doesn't have to, like, drive the point home. Even when he says it, she knows. She's like, oh, yeah, it's him. Ah, I hate it when I do that. Only one thing's needed, Martha. And, and Mary's chosen what better. And I, I, I'm not going to get on her case for that. I think Jesus loved Martha. And I think he missed her. He's like, he's like I'll, I'll, we'll get something to go on the way out of town. Come in here and be with me. And Jesus loves you. And maybe he misses you. I don't know. Are you spending time with Jesus? Jesus' rebuke was not about making the meal, but for thinking it was all about the meal. Now, this is, this is where we're going to get to the big idea. And I'll, I'll, I'll articulate this because the, the, the nuance of it might be missed, and then, and then you misinterpret what I'm saying. Don't put God first before everything. Put God in the middle of everything. And obviously, when I say don't put God first, I'm not saying don't prioritize God as utmost. That's the whole point of the text. So yes, put God first. Yes, prioritize God as the one thing you need. The grace of God, the power of God, the salvation of God, the affirmation of God. Without that, nothing else matters. So, so that is the one thing, right? But don't put God first before everything and then leave him there and go deal with everything on your own. If we put God first in the morning, 15 minutes of devotion, read the assigned reading, you know, you know, uh, do a little devotional, close the book, leave him there, I'll see you tonight, and then go out into my day. We're missing the point. Jesus is saying, one thing is needed, and that's regular, ongoing, real-time fellowship with me that you could be having right now, Martha, since I'm in your home, and all of you can be having right now because of his Holy Spirit. So don't just prioritize God 
before everything in the morning and then leave him there, take him into every moment of your day. Because, because of the Holy Spirit, all of life can be Martha's living room. Sharon and I endeavor to do this with our children, the raising of our children that God's given us. And we endeavoring to bring the, 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 the unseen thoughts into the seen realm, to bring the unconscious priorities into the seen realm so we can disciple our kids in those things that are most important. For instance, I regularly find myself just stopping things and praying with my kids because they'll bring me something, a scenario or a problem or a question they're stuck on. And in my mind, I'm praying Lord, help me. Lord, give me discernment. Lord, give me patience. Lord, give me insight. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, give me the right things to say. Give me the right question to ask. And then I realize I should externalize that so they understand God's here with us in this moment. And so I'll say, hey, sweetheart, can we pray real quick? And I'll pray. God, thank you for this moment. We get a chance to talk in the middle of a busy day. And I'm preaching to myself, right? I'm like, it's a busy day. You've got lots to do. And your kid wants to ask you a question about life that matters. Slow down, dummy. And so I, I, I'm preaching to myself what I need to be true in my life. God, thank you for this moment to talk and stop and push out the busy distractions of the day and have a meaningful conversation about things that matter with these questions we're dealing with or struggles we're having or, or emotions that we're trying to wrestle down. Lord, give us wisdom in this moment in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what was that again? What do you got? Trying to bring Jesus into the middle of what we're doing, not, a, not just say, oh, yeah, we read devotions this morning, so I'm sure he's here with us. I'll, I'll take care of it. What do you got? Jesus is saying here, put me in the middle of your life and enjoy the benefits that come with knowing that you're never alone and you can walk in a kind of sweet fellowship with the Father that when you're busy and distracted, you miss. Which means we need to learn to ruthlessly prioritize the, the mental space of our mind. And there's a sentence here, and, and a, a quote, and I don't know who said it, I can't remember. It's not mine. I want to give credit where credit is due. So Anonymous said this somewhere. He's a great guy. And she's a really smart gal. I don't know who she is. But I, I, uh, someone told me this, and, and I, I wrote it down in my journal, and I was thinking about this week, and I was like, where did I write that down? It was in the red journal, top left in the front, I think. I went and I found it in my journal. I wrote this quote down in, in, in the spring of 2014. And this is the quote that I, has always moved me. You could never overestimate the underimportance of almost everything. That's a paraphrase of what Jesus is saying in this text. You could never overestimate the underimportance of almost everything. You get that in your bones, you remind yourself, you ring that bell every day, it will change your life. Another way to say it is, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, indeed only one. That's another way to say it. Martha, you're overestimating the importance of what you're doing right now. And only one thing is needed. Things come at us, and we have decisions to make every day about how important these things are. A dear mentor friend of mine tells me when, when you face a crisis as a leader, it's like the alarm going off, the fire alarm going off in your kitchen. You have the same physiological a, 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 a response to a fire alarm every time you hear it. Danger, danger, danger. Heart racing, vision widening, you know, decision-making process speeding up. You, you have decisions to make now that that alarm is going off. And that alarm might indicate that the house is on fire, which is a very deadly scenario in which you need to make very quick decisions upon which life and death will hang. It could mean someone burnt the toast. Right? which would be a very different response. Completely different scenarios, same alarm, you have to decide how to respond. And that's true with you and I in life. Ping, ping, ping. I started counting last week how many text messages, emails, and, and notifications I get a day. It's, it's no wonder I'm anxious and, and upset. I'm, I'm distracted all day. And you're distracted. You know, ting. No, I mean, I mean I am shocked at, at, at the kind of things that the news agencies that I follow determine I should know about in my day. You ever thought about that? You know, ting, oh my gosh. Why the crap would they tell me that? You know what I mean? Ting, oh my gosh. I don't care. Ting, huh? I mean, have you ever had that experience? It's like, you know, ting, oh, North Korea launched a nuclear missile uh, at the Western Seaboard. Oh, I should care about that. Ting, Oh, Kim Kardashian brushed her teeth. I mean, it's like, what? <laughs> it's like, same alarm, completely different realities, 
but I'm being distracted by all of them. If you don't have a a set of, of, of clearly defined priorities in which you know those one or two things, then then you'll be allowed to be distracted by all sorts of things pulling for your attention, and you'll just begin living a life missing out on the most incredible opportunities God gives you during the day. You could never overestimate the underimportance of almost everything. Another way to say it, almost nothing's important. Almost nothing is important. Jesus said there are very, very few things that are important, and when those things are in place, it changes everything. When we have Jesus in his proper place in our world and things are orbiting around the center gravity of the glory of God, things that would have mattered to us before cease to have as much value. Listen to how J.C. Ryle put it, a little devotional he wrote on this passage in, 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 in Scripture. And I found it so encouraging. He wrote it, this is really fascinating, he wrote it in... 1858. So that's like, you know, like a long time ago. <laughs> that's what that is. And, uh, and this is what he said. Jesus says to us, one thing is needful. How true that saying. The longer we live in the world, the more true it will appear. The nearer we come to the grave, the more thoroughly we shall ascend to it. Health and money, lands and rank, honors and prosperity, are all well in their way, but they cannot be called needful. Without them, thousands are happy in this world and reach glory in the world to come. The quote, many things which men and women are continually struggling for are not really necessary at all. The grace of God which brings salvation is the one thing needful. Let this little sentence be continually before the eyes of our minds. Let it check us when we are ready to murmur at earthly trials. Let it strengthen us when we are tempted to deny our master on account of persecution. Let it caution us when we begin to think too much of the things of this world. Let it quicken us when we are disposed to look back like Lot's wife. In all such seasons, let the words of our Lord ring in our ears like a trumpet and bring us back to our right mind. One thing is needful. If Christ is ours, we have all and abound. We should observe, lastly, what high commendation our Lord Jesus Christ pronounced to Mary's choice, pronounced on Mary's choice. We read that he said, Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken from her. There was a deep meaning in these words. They were spoken not for Mary's sake only, but for the sake of all Christ-believing people in every part of the world. They were meant to encourage all true Christians to be single-eyed and wholehearted, to follow the Lord fully, and to walk closely with God to make soul business immeasurably their first business, and to think comparatively little of the things of this world. The true Christian's portion is the grace of God. This is the good part which he has chosen, and it is the only portion which really deserves the name of good. It is the only good thing which is substantial, satisfying, real, and lasting. It is good in sickness and good in health, good in youth and good in age, Good in adversity and good in prosperity. Good in life and good in death. Good in time and good in eternity. No circumstance and no position can be imagined in which it is not good for a man to have the grace of God. The true Christian's possession shall never be taken from him. He alone of all mankind shall never be stripped of his inheritance. Kings must one day leave their palaces... Rich men must one day leave their money and lands. They only hold them until they die. But the poorest saint on earth has a treasure of which he will never be deprived. The grace of God and the favor of Christ are riches which no man can take from him. They will go with him to the grave when he dies. They will rise with him in the resurrection morning and be his to all eternity. What do we know of this good part which Mary chose? Have we chosen it for ourselves? Can we say with truth that it is ours? Let us never rest till we can. Let us choose life while Christ offers it to us without money and without price. Let us seek treasure in heaven, lest we awake to find that we are paupers forevermore. Maybe no clearer picture 
in the New Testament that God is not a task master, master. He is not a slave driver. He is a father who wants relationship with his kids. If God was a taskmaster and Jesus the CEO of a budding organization, he wanted to succeed or else he would have told Mary, go fix me some food, I'm hungry, and I got work to do tomorrow. But what Jesus said was this is, I came so we could have this. Don't make the mistake of prioritizing doing things for me at the expense of being with me. I love you. And I'm for you. And, 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 and I've had the best carne asada in the world, so you can't impress me with that in there. Just come in here and let's be together while we can. And then there'll be time to do things for me. Yes and amen. But do things for me as an overflow of worship and love and gratefulness from having been with me. And that's the danger of us in the church, right? We'll get busy doing stuff for God and we'll forget to spend time with God. And when I say time with God, yes, morning devotions, yes, spiritual disciplines, yes, and amen, your soul will dry up without him. I am not down on those at all. I want to be pro those things. you got to have rhythm and discipline and routine in your life, or you will dry up and blow away. But it's more than those disciplines, because the disciplines are intended merely to get us plugged into the vine. That's the point. The point isn't to check the box next to all the verses that you read this summer so you can say you did it. The point is to discipline yourself to spend time with Jesus so you're reminded not to just make him first in your day and then move on to everything else, but to take him with you so that he can be with you in the middle of everything else. Your life is a series of decisions made and choices made coming from priorities you've established that will result in you taking advantage of opportunities or missing opportunities. For instance, when you put God at the center, and when you realize that you, that you have that one thing that's needed, namely the grace of God enabling relationship with Him, you can go tomorrow to work and walk into a meat grinder, dumpster fire train wreck, and rather than it being a missed opportunity to succeed, you can step into an amazing opportunity to have peace in the midst of chaos, because your priorities are, 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 are right. I have, I have the Father in relationship. I have the Son as my atonement. I have the Spirit as my power. I can fellowship with the Trinity in this moment, and God can get glory, and I can get joy from a very difficult situation because of whom I am in communion with in this moment. We can have that kind of peace and that kind of power. And so here, here, here's the application I want to make for us uh, as a church family since it's, it's, it's Father's Day. I want to speak to the men and encourage the men in this. Men, ruthlessly prioritize your life. Are you the kind of man who knows that one thing that's needed and is pressing into that one thing on a continual basis daily so that your life is marked by that one thing and you live from the place of that one thing and you don't prioritize God above everything else and leave him in the morning, you take him into everything that you are in the middle of every day? Are you that kind of man? There's a lot on the line with our kids, and there's a lot of eyes, little eyes watching. You may think, well, my kids are growing and gone. They're still watching. My dad's, I think, watching this live stream right now with, with my mom, and they're not here right now because they've gone away to take some time to reprioritize their life and, and work on their summer and fall calendars so that they give their best time to the best things. And at 42, and I think 72, I my dad is, I'm watching him as a grown man going, I need to do that more often. My dad is still teaching, instructing, discipling me. My mom is still teaching, instructing, discipling me with how they're living their life. I'm still learning from them. Don't check out of the game. I've mind-blowing comments I've heard from parents recently. You know, they got a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid who's dating somebody they don't like. They're like, well, what can I do? You know, they're a teenager now. What can you do? Oh, my gosh. Throw this pulpit off the stage. I don't know. Be a dad. You could do that. You could speak in your kid's life. You could show up. You could be present. You could dispense wisdom. You could say no. They're still eating your food. You still have some say. Good Lord. Oh, what can I do? I'm just a, there's a teenager. Ah! <laughs> I wasn't anticipating that moment right there, so I apologize to offend anybody.
Now, you got grown adults, I get it. Butt out, let them live their life, be responsible, don't be, I understand, lines, boundaries, yes. I mean, I mean, nosy parents, that's a problem too. But you're just never out of the game, Dad, ever. You can pray for your kids. You can petition heaven on behalf of your kids. You can make yourself obnoxious to the Father by how many times you ask him to save your son. You can say, Lord, I'm not going away. I'll be here tomorrow and the next day, the next day. I need you to rescue my son. I, 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 need, I can't, we can't, I need you to do it. I'm, I'm acknowledging you are all powerful and you are able and you could if you want. I'm here asking, would you please? You're never out of the game with your kids, ever. And so let's not, be, let's not take this victimology, victimhood culture and apply it to parents. You know what I mean? Like, what can I do? I'm just their dad. I don't know. You could be a dad. And ask God for the wisdom to know what that looks like at every level of their development and every phase of their life. Be present as dad. You're like, I'm 62. I'm hearing all this for the first time. I failed catastrophically. Thanks be to God. You're here today hearing how much he loves you and how much he is for you and how powerful his grace is to cover any and all mistakes you've made so you can start new today. Never out of the fight. Never out of the fight. God's grace is sufficient for all the mistakes you've made. And, and maybe you're here and, 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 and you, you got two little kids. Isn't God gracious and kind to let you hear this now? Check your gut. What is your priority? Where do you spend your time? What's the set of values you're drawing from to make decisions every day that are shaping for your kids what they think is important in life? Your daily decisions are discipling your children in priorities. What a privilege, dads, to get it right with the grace of God and his help. So what I want to do to end our time is, is I, I just want to read something I, I wrote from my dad. I wrote it. I wrote it about him. Not. Uh, I wrote it about him in the form of writing it to him. Um, a publication asked if I would write something on fatherhood. I got stuck and I couldn't figure, think anything out because most of the time I don't feel like I have anything useful to say. But I thought if I reflect on who my dad is and what he's done, I could write about that. And so I began thinking about my dad and I wrote this article um, in the form of thanking my dad for the kind of dad he was. Then I just sat down and reflected on what I benefited from, what I liked in having him as my dad, and I want to read it now as a way to honor my dad who's watching online right now, I think, and tell him thank you. I want to read it to honor my mom, who's a part of, 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 of helping my dad become this kind of man. Without, without my mom, my dad wouldn't be this kind of man. And she just said amen in her hotel room. <laughs> uh, didn't she? We know that she did. Yeah. She said, amen, Greg, he, he speaks truth. And so I, I, I want to read this as a thanks to my mom and my dad as a reflection on, on what I was grateful my dad for, as, a, as a, a word of encouragement for what the prioritized life looks like and what the prioritized life produces. I want to be a good dad. Excuse me. Back it up. Put my glasses back on. There it is. I don't want to be a good dad. I want to be an exceptional dad. But the longer I live and the more ministry I do, the more I have come to realize there are precious few examples of grace in action when it comes to fatherhood. So on this Father's Day, this was seven years ago, I wanted to take a moment, heed Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 6, and honor my own father. Was he perfect? No. Did he make, did he make mistakes? Certainly. Does he wish he could do things differently? I have no idea. But in a land where few men finish well when it comes to the daunting task of fatherhood, I've found myself reflecting and marveling at the grace of God in my dad's life. He loved Jesus, repented often, and poured his life into his two sons. How much more could a boy ask for? In your life, Dad, I have found a roadmap for my own role as father, so I wanted to take a few moments and tell you thanks. Specifically, thanks for never putting me down. Not once. You never made fun of me, mocked me, or talked about me like I wasn't there. Never was I the butt of your jokes. In everything, you built me up, encouraged me, moved me forward. You always spoke of my future with great hope. The Lord will give you great opportunities, Josh. Jesus has great plans for you, son. 
this sort of prophetic encouragement every boy needs, and I got it in bushels. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for running into my room the night I screamed in agony from growing pains. I was eight. You were half asleep. Tripping on a toy, you went sprawling across the room in your underwear. We both burst out laughing. Then you rubbed my leg cramps for an hour. I slept in the next day. You were up at six and out the door. You put my need to be comforted in front of your need for sleep. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for being the toughest man I know and crying in front of me often. It's good for a boy to see both. I've seen you cut down trees, fix tractors, build things, and tackle gut-wrenching church conflict with unflinching courage and razor-sharp biblical clarity. I've also seen you listen intently, hug often, and tear up quickly when moved by someone's pain or God's grace. Not the helpless, whimpering, cowardly sort of tears, the genuine, earnest, heartfelt tears of a man who feels and thinks deeply. You cry easily when talking about Jesus, the gospel, redemption, and the day God called you into ministry. I love that. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for raising your hands and singing loudly with the church. I distinctly remember as a young boy looking up and seeing tears roll down your cheek during worship. I couldn't articulate it then, but I knew that you were singing to someone who meant everything to you, who was great and big and awesome and worthy of your allegiance, and who gave you great joy. That is a gift to a young man. You didn't tell me to love Jesus passionately. You loved Jesus passionately, and it drew me in. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for spanking us, then hugging us. This is a powerful parenting combination that no child's heart can resist. I never felt more safe and loved than when held in your arms as the sting of the spank faded and the assurance of your unshakable love filled my heart. Redemptive discipline is a precious thing. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for leaving me notes in the bathroom mirror growing up. Sometimes they were a verse written out you'd read that morning or a prayer for something big I was facing or an apology for something said the night before. No matter the occasion, they were always encouraging, full of scripture, and right on point. This told me you were thinking about me even when you were gone and were vested in my success that day. Huge for a kid. I still have most of them today. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for putting my friends to work every time they came over to our house. <laughs> Mowing the lawn, cleaning the garage, cutting firewood, or working on a, shop, a project in the shop. You worked us like dogs. And I could never figure out why all the guys wanted to, come to keep coming back to my house. But I figured it out later. You treated them like men. And then you'd fire up the barbecue and spend the rest of the day asking us what we would wanted to do with our life that would make an internal impact. They loved it. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for reading your Bible every morning. That might be the biggest memory I have. You at the kitchen table, worn Bible in front of you, studying away, not checking Facebook, not returning emails, not reading the paper, soaking in the Word. Sometimes tears were running down your face. Sometimes your eyebrows were burrowed in thought. Sometimes your head was bowed in prayer. Sometimes your pen was scratching furiously in your journal. But always, you were there. Bible in hand, heart open, mind working. It left an indelible imprint, imprint on the life of a young boy about how a real man starts his day. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for laughing loud, long, and lots at the dinner table, on a hunting trip, or just whenever. Some of the funnest memories I have include watching you slap your thigh, throw back your head, and roar with laughter. I loved hearing your laugh. Still do to this day. You took many things in life blood earnest, but you laughed at yourself often. That is a gift that has served me well in ministry. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for charging me rent the day I turned 18 and was still living in your basement. <laughs> All my other friends learned to freeload. I learned to work. And it wasn't done as a cruel punishment, but a teaching moment for taking responsibility as a, as, and growing up as a man. Thanks, Dad. Take note, Levi. Thanks for loving me without question or hesitation. I have questioned many things in my life, doubted many things, faced many unknowns, but there is one thing of which I have never questioned. Your love for me has been unwavering and relentless, dependable and true, teaching me a lot about how I am loved by my Heavenly Father. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for turning down speaking engagements so you, quote, wouldn't miss the important years. I did not appreciate it then. I do now. Thanks, Dad. 
Thanks for resting with us as little kids every night when you came home from work. You were probably exhausted from work, but we but knew we were waiting behind the couch to launch a surprise attack. <laughs> you could have said you were too tired, but you didn't. You wrestled until giggling and short of breath, we begged for mercy while simultaneously asking for more. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for filling the dinner table with stories of gospel victories. These were the, the best moments ever. To hear of a broken person made whole through the redeeming work of Jesus. My big takeaway from our dinner conversations was that you're never really living unless you're serving others and investing in the kingdom. You whetted our appetite for gospel ministry early. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for reading the picture Bible every night to us before bed as kids. And oh, how you brought it to life. When Moses faced the Red Sea, I was overwhelmed with despair. When David stared down Goliath, I trembled with fear. When Jesus rose from the grave, we cheered and clapped for joy. Dad, when you read the Bible, the story came to life. It's no wonder your two boys have given their life to teaching others that same Bible. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for buying a hot tub so we could have a place to, you know, hash it out. Some of my best memories as a teen are coming home after something happened at school or sports with a fr or with friends and, and asking, hey, Dad, want to hit the tub? And knowing that you'd never say no so we could have a life-shaping conversation. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for teaching us the importance of having multiple mentors by having them for yourself and regularly showing us how they helped you. To this day, learning from men around me is a deeply held value, one that has served me my wife, our family, and our church well. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for sitting on the front row, Bible open, taking furious notes as I preached, and bellowing hearty amens. In this you show me what it's like for a man to be a lifelong learner, even as he sits learning from the boy he once taught. Thanks for confessing your sin often. You were not perfect, but when you messed up, you were quick to confess it and repent of it. These moments made us feel safe, like we could follow you without fear. There was integrity in your life, and it gave me confidence in your leadership. You taught me by your example that a wise man is not a perfect man, but a repenting man. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for being the first person I wanted to call when we found out LMA would be born with this thing they called spina bifida. That was a dark night of the soul moment, a confusing time full of unknowns. And all I knew was I needed to call my dad. You listened and affirmed your love for us and God's plan and all the pain. Then you prayed with us and invited us over to the house because we need to, quote, talk it out and make a plan for this new little blessing that God's going to send into our lives. You were right that day. I needed someone to tell me that this little girl would be a blessing. And you did. Thanks, Dad. Thanks for loving my wife like your own daughter. She feels your love. She feels your support. She knows that if we came to you for counsel with a relationship conflict between us, that you'd take her side first before you take mine. <laughs> Quote, I think we love her more than we love you, Josh. <laughs> I know we like her more. Mom just said amen again in the hotel room. You've said it with a wink and a laugh, but it's communicated the point. And that's a wonderful thing for a daughter-in-law to know that creates great stability in the house of your son. Thanks, Dad. I could go on, but I'm way over word count. So thanks, Dad, for loving Jesus and living a life that makes it easy to remember and honor. I love you deeply and am still watching closely as you follow Jesus and finish well. You have lived a life worth emulating, and I've been taking notes. May I learn from God's grace in your life to love my children the same. I love you, Dad. That's a picture of a man who lived a prioritized life. Your organization is structured to give you the outcomes you're getting. The decisions of your life that you're making, coming from the priorities you've identified or not ever thought of, are giving you the outcomes you're currently living with. 
what priorities need to be identified and changed, what, need to be, what needs to be reordered, where are very good things demanding your time and distracting you and causing you anxiety and causing you to be upset, when there's really one thing that's needed, and when, that, when that's anchored, when that's set, everything else kind of rolls. Where have you been prioritizing God as first in your life and then moving past him into other stuff rather than taking God with you into the middle of your stuff so he, he can be with you throughout your day? Dads, get this text right. Prioritize your life around the glory of God, the mission of God, the Son of God. Let who God says you are be your identity, and you'll be shocked at the things you won't feel like chasing anymore. So you can be present with your kids to be a reflection to them of your Heavenly Father. So I want to encourage you to bow your heads as we move to a time of prayer. And, and in just a moment, the, the, the worship team will, will lead us into our final song to sing. But I just want you to reflect right now in your own life. Where is the Lord convicting you, encouraging you? Where is he inviting you in the living room? Hey, hey, Susan, Steve, Karen, Johnny, Josh, Sarah, Will, Come into the living room. I'm in here. I know you're busy. Like, like, I'm in here now. Who is he inviting? Where is he inviting you? And what are those things that have become maybe distractions? They're good things, but they're not the best things. They've dominated your time. They've dominated your attention. They've dominated your heart. They've kept you from being present. They've kept you from enjoying the, the presence of God in exercising faith. You just sit with the Lord, just talk to the Lord, ask Him to return to you that first love to reprioritize in your life, Him above all things. Just talk with the Lord, and we're going to sing together in a moment.